Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. So, I'd like to begin this evening uh, with a chant. It's the homage to the Buddha. It's traditional to offer respect and gratitude to our teacher before speaking about his, uh, his wisdom. And the melody is a melody from a Buddhist nun, Ayamidanandi, who happens to share um, a Jewish lineage with me. Namo <clears> tassa <throat> Bhagavato Arahato Sammasambhodasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambhodasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambhodasa Buddhang Dhammang Sangang Namasami So you're still here. <laughs> nice work. Seriously. It's not easy, huh? It's hard to be with this mind all day long. <laughs> Have you noticed? Yeah. And then we get like a little bit of respite maybe for like three minutes during one sitting where we're with the breath. <laughs> Like, oh, thank God, the hindrances have stopped. And then we're sitting up here, pay attention to your thoughts, feel your emotions, notice body sensations. It's like, I just want to be with my breath. (laughs) All that stuff. (laughs) Concentration's wonderful when, um, when it gathers, it protects the mind, it protects the heart. from this uh, really challenging world that we're in. But it's not the point. It's not the point of the practice. It's a tool. So the title of this retreat is Concentration and Insight. So I wanted to talk tonight a little bit about that other part, the insight part. One of my first meditation teachers uh, was fond of saying, If you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. That's simple. That's what we're doing. We're taking the time to sit down and look closely at our lives, at our mind, our heart, our body. So what is it that we see? What is it that we understand as we start to look more deeply? This is about wisdom. 
development of wisdom is the through seeing clearly. So in Pali, the word for wisdom is panya, panya. Pa is an emphasis. It means like really, really. Like. And nya, that word nya, is related to the word knowledge. Same root, gnosis. Panya, same root to know, to really, really know. So sometimes it gets translated as discernment, direct knowing, an intuitive awareness. It's a felt understanding. It's not intellectual knowing. Although it begins there. So the development of wisdom starts by hearing the teachings. Just by hearing them. This is one layer of wisdom. And then we reflect on it. We take it in. We consider it. We're encouraged to turn it over, to really examine it with a critical eye and say, is this true? Does this match my experience? And then if there's enough faith, enough trust and confidence to try it out, we put the teachings into practice. And it's through practice, through applying the teachings directly, that we come to a deeper kind of wisdom. It becomes our own, through our own experience. We develop what's known as jnana, same root, insight, deep understanding. So mindfulness and wisdom work together on this path. We need both. One of our teachers, Michelle McDonald, likes to say mindfulness is the intention to understand rather than to judge. She's talking about satipanya, mindfulness and wisdom together. We pay attention to what's happening, but not in a kind of dull or automatic way, with a curiosity. What's going on here? What is this? I remember many years ago when I was working as a cook at the Insight Meditation Society early in my practice, we would have meditations twice a day with the staff up in the attic in this little sitting area. One evening, just you know, diligently doing my practice, 45 minutes, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out, thinking, thinking, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in. And the bell rings. Oh, okay. And after the bell rang, I just had this moment of realizing, like, wait a minute, what just happened? I was kind of paying attention, but I didn't really learn anything. It was just doing the practice without actually being present fully. This practice requires that we bring our intelligence into what's happening, to really look at what we're experiencing closely in order to understand. So last night, Jess talked about the development of right effort, this balanced effort, and one aspect of that being the cultivation of what's skillful and the relinquishment, the letting go of what's unskillful, yeah? One of the initial aspects of wisdom is the ability to tell the difference between what's skillful and what's unskillful. The word in Pali for this is kusala. So skillful is a translation. So kusala means uh, beautiful, bright, healthy, beneficial. Okay? It's different than um, Western notions of good and evil. 
It's defined by the root. What is the root of the action, the speech, the thought? Is it rooted in confusion and ignorance, craving and greed, hatred and aversion? Those are known as unskillful roots because they lead to suffering. They create pain and difficulty for ourselves and others in life. It's unskillful. Is it rooted in clarity, understanding, generosity, compassion? Those are skillful roots in the mind. Thoughts, words, and deeds that flow from those will lead to happiness, beneficial results. So the precepts provide a training ground for the development of wisdom and letting go and the cultivation of what's skillful. They give us a little bit of a, a, an outline that says, okay, like try to stay within these boundaries. And it's through paying attention to that we start to notice the difference between skillful and unskillful motivations. Over time, that awareness starts to get refined. We can notice, as Jess was saying last night, just in our practice, where are we coming from? Are we coming from self-hatred, sense of inadequacy, not good enough, an unskillful motivation and reconditioning that? Or are we coming from a wholesome motivation, a skillful motivation? So as we practice, this becomes more of a felt understanding than an intellectual idea. We begin to feel the, the tone of a skillful intention. It's bright. It's clear. It's uplifting. It's steady. We get to know how, what an unskillful motivation, what that push feels like inside. It's shaky. It's a little fuzzy or blurred. It's contracted. It's tight. Slightly bristly, irritated. We we develop a felt sense for it. This part of wisdom, discernment, being able to tell the difference between what's skillful and what's unskillful, this allows us to develop a more pleasant resting place internally. To start to have just a little bit more ease and relief in our day-to-day life because we're not continually recreating unskillful mind states and actions internally and externally. We start to brighten the inner atmosphere of the heart and the mind with qualities like generosity, kindness, patience, truthfulness. This creates the context for us to go deeper, for us to look more closely at what it is to be human. And this leads on to a deeper kind of wisdom, the wisdom of insight, of seeing clearly. Insight is a direct understanding. It's Archimedes getting in the bathtub and realizing, oh, volume, the water was displaced. It's just a sudden flash of understanding that comes. Why? 
He didn't just get in the bathtub one day and realize it, right? He had been puzzling over that problem for a long time. He'd been observing very closely. He'd been considering very carefully. And at a certain point when he got in that bathtub, the mind had enough data. It put it all together. It went, I get it. That's what's happening. It saw clearly. So we slow down, we cultivate concentration to pay attention closely to our experience so that our our heart and mind can begin to gather more information. What's happening? Why am I so stressed out? I'm on retreat. (laughs) What's so hard about just sitting here following my breath? Walking back and forth. You know, why do I keep replaying that conversation that I had two weeks ago? Why do I keep worrying about that meeting that's not happening until next week? Why can't I just relax? So we pay attention closely until the mind has enough information and then it understands, it's insight, something shifts. So there are different kinds of insight we have on this path, different layers. I like to talk about three layers of insight. We have personal or psychological insight. This is understanding things about ourself, about how we feel, about where certain patterns come from, about our life. Gosh, I didn't realize I was so angry at my sister. I didn't realize I was still carrying so much grief over that thing that happened several years ago. I remember one retreat in my mid-twenties, working at the Insight Meditation Society, wondering what the heck I was gonna do with my life. And just following the breath one day, sitting there, and all of a sudden just realizing, oh, I'm afraid. I'm really afraid. It has just been there in the background the whole time, this energy of fear, so afraid. What am I going to do? Am I wasting my life? Why am I here? I hadn't really fully recognized it. It's personal insight. Something that's present for us. We can have relational insight, sometimes referred to it as social insight. Insight into how our minds have been conditioned by society. oh, I feel really comfortable speaking up because ever since I was a little boy, everyone told me I was smart and that what I had to say was useful because I have a male body and light skin and I live in this country. I remember I was teaching with a colleague of mine in the nonviolent communication circles, other work that I do, female, and we were doing a day program together and she had just finished teaching a certain, a certain bit. Anyone who identifies as female in this room will probably recognize very clearly what I'm about to describe. Do you know what's coming? Yeah. So I repeated what she said, right? But I was being mindful, I was practicing. And not only did I notice that I repeated it, but I noticed the conditioning of why I repeated it. I noticed this conditioning that I had this perception that my voice carried more weight in the room because it was deeper. 
because it was a male voice. And I wanted that point to really get across. And I was like, wow, look at that. Look at that. So social insight, okay? On all different levels, we have insight into our conditioning uh, as a racialized being, in terms of our gender, in terms of our abilities, all these different layers of messaging that we get from, from the world that shape us and shape how we relate to ourselves and others. We can see that clearly if we pay attention, have insight into it. The purpose of insight is to free the heart. When we see clearly, we're no longer defined by or run by whatever that pattern is, whatever that energy is. Until I saw that fear clearly, it was kind of running the show in the background, directing, pushing, guiding, coloring everything. This is why we practice mindfulness of thoughts and emotions, third foundation of mindfulness, citta nupassana, being aware of the heart and the mind. What are the filters through which we're seeing? We can actually become aware of those. When we're not aware of them, it's like looking through dirty glasses, everything looks fuzzy. As soon as we become aware of those filters, we can actually take them off and see in a different light. This practice is designed to create the conditions for a deeper kind of insight. Insight into the nature of reality. Insight into the nature of what it is to be here in the human mind and body kind of classical insight in the Buddhist tradition. This is an understanding into a truth that we all share. Not something that's just personal. Not something that's just about having been born in a light-skinned male body in this particular age, in this particular part of the world. It's a universal truth. When I was a little boy, um, there were some pine trees in the backyard where I grew up. I remember lying on the on the pine needles, just looking up at the sky. It tells you something about my childhood right there, you know, just that I felt safe enough to lie down on the ground, that I had access to nature enough to be underneath the trees. The little kids do that, you know. We have to come on retreat to remember how to do that. <laughs> when you're a kid, you just oh, oh. just looking at the sky for no particular reason. And I had an insight. Wow, clouds move. That's so cool. I never realized that clouds move. They were always just those white little fluffy things in the picture books and those, those little white blobs up in the sky. I never looked closely enough to notice that they're changing. This is insight into impermanence. The uh, author and novelist Marcel Proust said, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. This is what we're learning to do here. We're not trying to find something new. We're not trying to get something that doesn't exist. We're trying to put down all the junk that gets in the way from seeing clearly what's already here. The American painter, Georgia O'Keeffe, is one of my favorite quotes. I 
share a lot when I teach that I first heard from Joseph, from Joseph Goldstein. She said, still, in a way, nobody sees a flower, really. It's so small. We haven't time. And to see takes time. Like to have a friend takes time. This is what we're doing here. We're taking the time to learn how to see clearly. That's what vipassana means, to see clearly. Learning how to be a good friend to ourselves, feel safe enough to look deeply. So what do we see when we look, when we look deeply, when we feel safe enough to do that? The Buddha talked about three particular things that we see, that we understand as the nature of all experience. Talked about these three characteristics, lakana, anicca, impermanence, change, dukkha. That which is difficult, hard, hard to bear unreliable, anatta, so the hardest one to understand. The other two we can kind of get to intellectually. Anatta means non-self, not personal. I'm going to say a little bit about each of these. So anicca literally means not permanent, not fixed. It's just the reality that everything changes, yeah? And we, we all know this intellectually, but we don't fully understand it in our heart. There's uh, one passage in the, in the suttas where somebody asks, what is it that, the, that Buddhas know? What is it that you know that's different? Pretty good question. Yeah? I mean, is, do you want to know that? <laughs> I want to know that. <laughs> what is it he knew that the rest of us don't know? All that arises passes away. That's what Buddhists know. All that arises passes away. There's a famous meditation master from the last century, Ajahn Chah, who was Jack Cornfield's teacher. He was my teacher's teacher's teacher. A great grandfather. Um, there's this famous story about him holding up this beautiful, I've heard it told differently. I should actually ask Ajahn Suchito what it was. I've heard it told that he was holding up a, a vase or like a, a, gla- a glass, some, some kind of crystal that someone had given him that apparently he really liked. And he, he held it up to his students and he said, you see this vase, you see this glass? To me, it's already broken. So I can really enjoy it. Everything that arises passes away. In the Diamonds Sutra, a Mahayana text, there's a passage that's a kind of translation from the early Theravada Sutta that says, uh, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a cloud, a flickering lamp, an echo, and a dream. Thus should you view all conditioned things. Where does it all go? 
It's gone. It's just like that. I mean, we're all here right now. A couple days' time, it'll just be a memory. Do we really understand it in the heart? Do we allow our heart to take in the reality of how quickly everything is changing? Every moment, it's like sand running through our fingers. When we develop enough mindfulness and concentration to see clearly, the filter of permanence created by thinking falls away. And perhaps you've seen this, perhaps you've glimpsed this in your meditation for a few moments, seeing the way, whoa, change right there in front of us. This doesn't mean that we don't care Impermanence doesn't mean we stop caring. It doesn't mean we don't grieve when we lose things we love. It takes some of the sting out because we know it's bound to happen. We understand that's the nature of things. And it allows us to appreciate the beauty of life more fully. Death is the mother of beauty. It lets us really receive the richness because we know it's just here for a moment. I remember one of the first insights I had into impermanence in my practice, the impermanence of emotions. I was driving from IMS to uh, the newest nearby college town, Amherst, in western Massachusetts. And I was driving along the road and feeling anxious about something. I don't remember what. My mind was kind of, you know, stirs, kind of caught on something. And I was practicing. It's like, okay, anxiety, anxiety. Oh, it feels like this. This is this is what it is, how it is right now. <laughs> Anxious, right? <laughs> so there was enough mindfulness to really connect fully with that experience of anxiety and be fully aware of it. And then I lost mindfulness. Just mind wandered somewhere else. Then it wandered somewhere else. And then it wandered somewhere else, and it forgot about the anxiety. Whatever it was it was worried about, it kind of just like forgot. And then, I, and then I, mindfulness came back, and I was like, mindful again. Oh. And as soon as I became mindful again, I was whoa, anxiety's gone. It's not here anymore. There's enough continuity. Even though I left, even though I lost mindfulness, I had been present enough with the anxiety that when mindfulness returned, it was so apparent that anxiety that seems so real, it's gone, it's not here. One of the hallmarks of insight is that when we understand one of these characteristics in one moment, the mind understands the pattern. Oh, everything's like that. All my emotions are like that. And then you never experience an emotion the same after that. Once you've seen it in one way, there's always this knowing there. Yeah, I know this will pass because I've seen it. It's not an idea anymore. Anicca. Dukkha. This word that's so hard to translate. Because everything's changing, it's unreliable. We can't lean on anything. This is one of the meanings of dukkha, unreliable, unstable. 
And it also refers to that which in life is difficult, that which in life is hard to bear. There is suffering in life. It's just part of being here. So again, we have an expectation that everything should work out, (laughs) that things shouldn't break, that our body shouldn't get older or wrinkled or gray or flabby or, you know, what all the things it does. Our our friend and teacher Temple, the way he likes to talk about this sometimes is, is we have a bad map. (laughs) We have an outdated map. Right? And we keep looking at this map and going, how come nothing works? <laughs> and we keep fighting with what's actually going on and saying, no, it's supposed to be this way. It says right here. And, you know, there's a quote from um, Audubon. The James Audubon, was that his name? Any birders here? The guy who founded the Audubon Society, the birder. He said, when, um, when the bird and the book differ, believe the bird. <laughs> I was taking a bus to um, Tisar in a monastery up in Ontario when I was training as a monastic on my way to go spend time there with the abbot and the monastery in this community outside of uh, Ottawa. And um, they had arranged a, a ride to pick me up at the bus station in, in uh, Perth, I think, is the nearby town there. Is anyone from Canada here? Oh, wow, no Canadians on our retreat. Okay. Um, and for whatever reason, like, the information on the bus schedule was wrong, so I got to Ottawa, and it was like the bus wasn't until tomorrow. And I, I felt like I was so embarrassed and upset. I was like, oh my God, they're sending a car to pick me up and I'm not going to be there until tomorrow. And, you know, I was just like really upset. And I called, I called the monastery and I talked to the abbot. I talked to Ajahn Virdamo. I said, you know, Ajahn, I'm so sorry. I'm here in Ottawa and, you know, the bus doesn't leave till tomorrow. I guess I'm not going to be there till tomorrow. He was like, oh, that's okay. That's normal. You know, it's like, yeah, that's what it's like. Things don't work, right? The boss is broken already. Uh, when I was in my mid-20s, I came down with um, a chronic digestive disorder. It's known as ulcerative colitis. It can be very, um, very, can be very painful and uncomfortable. Uh, tends to run in young Jewish men, so I, I won the lottery there. Um, and so for many years, uh, I was trying to figure out, you know, what I could and couldn't eat and what kind of probiotics to take and what kind of medicine to take. Anyway, uh, when I was at this monastery in England, um, everybody knew that I had this condition because I couldn't eat all these foods and I had a special food. And, 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 and. Anyway, this one particular uh, lay guest came up to, you know, we were in the kitchen one day and he, uh, he asked me, he said... Um, kind of very British way, he said, what is your affliction? <laughs> yeah, I love that. What is your affliction? <laughs> and I pause. It's so interesting. I, you know, I've been living with it for, for over 10 years at that time, and I'd done a lot of letting go around 
okay, you know, this is what's happened. This is what is. And I say, you know, it's interesting. I don't experience it that way. It's just a condition. So part of what fuels dukkha, as I'll talk about in a little bit more in in a few moments, is our relationship to what's happening. So we can learn to see things as they are rather than as we want them to be. There's a quote from the Talmud, which I haven't studied, but apparently it's a quote from the Talmud that says, we don't see things as they are but as we are. We look through our own lens. So. These different flavors of dukkha, there's the dukkha of just what's straight up painful and hard in life, unpleasant sensations, being separated from people we love, being associated with people we don't like, not getting what we want, getting things we don't want, getting old, sick, and dying. It's just inherently kind of painful. Um, there's the dukkha of even pleasant things that are enjoyable, which are enjoyable, have this kind of seed of suffering in them because they end. doesn't mean they're not enjoyable and beautiful. It just means that they don't last. They, they can't do it for us in an ultimate or lasting way. They're just marked with that because they change. And then there's this kind of dukkha that's just about the, the repetitiveness of life. Have you noticed? <laughs> it's like every day to brush my teeth. Every day I have to eat. Every day get dressed, get undressed, wash the dishes, walk the dog, clean the floor. It's just, just over and over and over. And it's called samsara. There's an aspect of dukkha. There's just this kind of repetitiveness of life. So the third characteristic that we see clearly as we look closely is is this anatta. It's one of the most difficult to understand because it's counterintuitive. This This is pointing to a few different things. It's pointing to the reality that we're not in control. One of the translations or um, meanings of anatta is that things are ungovernable. Like Sharon Salzberg likes to say, you know, it's it's not like we say today I'm going to feel, you know, self hatred at 10 a.m. and then around 11 I'll feel that kind of happy blissful feeling I had yesterday. It's like it's just not up to us what happens. There's an impersonal nature to life. Things are just unfolding due to different causes and conditions. It's just the laws of nature. It's not personal. It goes deeper than that. that the Who and what we take ourselves to be is not as it appears. We all experience ourselves. We have this experience of being me. 
that's very real in its own way. You know, like, I don't feel the knee pain you have, and you don't feel, you know, whatever the itchiness in my neck or something that I have. We feel things very intimately and personally. But those experiences don't belong to us in some essential way. We can start to see this anatta nature, this impersonal nature of experience as mindfulness and concentration grow. We start to see that the things that we take to be solid, not just ourself, everything is actually just made up of different parts. And all of those parts are made up of other parts. And that ultimately it's all just kind of almost empty. It's all just conditions kind of coming together. And quantum physics understands this now that, you know, this whole podium and chair is mostly empty space, right? There's actually nothing there. But that doesn't mean I can't sit on it. <laughs> Both are true, right? So there is this sense of being me and having a personal history and all of that. I can sit on the cushion and it's empty. So I remember the first insight I had into anatta on a long retreat. I was standing in front of the building, my eyes closed, just being mindful. And mindfulness and concentration had really grown to a very strong degree by that point, very stable and continuous. And I felt the wind, the wind. And I noticed the mind labeling, recognizing, oh, that's the wind. But because mindfulness and concentration were present and stable and continuous, I was able to experience what was actually happening, which was what? Pressure, coolness, tingling. And in that moment, my mind saw clearly, there's no wind. It's just this sensation changing. And the mind puts it all together based on memory and says, I know that one, that's the wind. Where's the wind? Is there any wind? Everything's like that. This is insight into anatta, seeing the the selfless or coreless nature of everything. So we can see this about our thoughts and emotions. Very powerful when we start to learn to see thought as thought rather than as me. Remember the first time I saw a thought as a thought rather than as mine. I had just finished a retreat. Very, very powerful time to practice after the retreat because you have a lot of momentum, but all your patterns are coming back. (laughs) I was sitting in my room. And I was just sitting there because I just finished a retreat, so I was just like, oh. (laughs) And then this thought arose. It was like, well, I guess I better get up and clean my room. And I was just about to get up and clean my room. And I was like, wait a minute. I don't have to clean my room. That's just a thought. I saw it clearly. It's just a thought. It's just a pattern. When we don't see our thoughts clearly, they have tremendous power over us. It's just a thought. It's not who you are. 
Who are we really? Are you your body? Not the same body as it used to be, is it? Are you your thoughts? Which ones? How about your feelings, your emotions? Do those stick around? What about your awareness? Does that feel different sometimes? We have to get interested. If we want to understand who we are, we really have to look closely. We have to be patient. To see takes time. One of the one of the um, couple of analogies that I've I've found very helpful to just conceptually understand this idea of anatta. Remember, wisdom begins by understanding it intellectually, then reflecting on it, then practicing with it. Take the take a rainbow. Okay, is there really a rainbow? Can you go and touch it? <laughs> There's the appearance of a rainbow when certain conditions come together. Moisture, light, a particular angle. It's a rainbow. But there's nothing really there, is there? Yeah? So everything's like that. Joseph uses the Big Dipper analogy. Some of you have heard this one? Great analogy. So here in the Northern Hemisphere, if we look up in the sky at night, we can see the Big Dipper, right? You know what I'm talking about, the Big Dipper? Saucepan in the sky. Is there, is there a Big Dipper up there? Is there really a... Is there? No. <laughs> okay. The next time you're looking at the stars, try to not see the Big Dipper. It's hard to do. That's what we're learning how to do. How to see clearly. How to put down all those filters, all those ideas about how things should be, about who I am, who I was or will be, and to just see what's happening right now. This is one kind of insight, insight into the three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta. In the Buddha's teaching, panya also refers to insight into the four noble truths. This is the last thing I want to talk about tonight. Sayada Utejaniya, um, uh, teacher from from Burma, he says, peace itself is not the goal. If peace is the goal, then when you can't achieve peace by meditating, you don't know what to do. When the goal is to understand, you can try to understand suffering too. So the insight, one of the insights that the Buddha had that was so liberating was this insight into the mechanism of suffering, how and why we suffer in life. And the Four Noble Truths are that there is suffering, dukkha, difficulty, hardship, stress, dissatisfaction. There is this aspect of life that's hard. Yeah? Is there anyone here who doesn't experience that? It's not random. There's a cause. There's a reason we suffer. Because there's a reason, because it comes into being, it, it can end. 
It's not permanent. Suffering too is impermanent, thank God. And that there's a path, there's a way to ending the conditions that keep creating suffering. So there's suffering, there's a cause to it, it ends. When that cause ends, when we put that cause down, it ends. And that there's a path. We don't have to make it up, we don't have to figure it out on our own, thankfully. There's a path we can follow. So the invitation here is to look at this in our own experience, to check it out. The Buddha said this Dhamma, this teaching, is apparent here and now. It's timeless. It's not something we get in the future. It's available right here now. It's relevant. It's directly applicable to our own lives. It takes us further, it takes us deeper, and it's, it's to be experienced individually by each of us. So he said, check it out, look and see, do you suffer? Is there difficulty in life? And then to, to try to understand that, to seek to understand it, rather than to always try to avoid it. It's natural to, avoid, to want to avoid it. Of course we want to avoid it. Of course we contract and pull away when we're in pain. That's not the enemy. That's a defense mechanism. That's what we've learned to do to get by in a world of change. We're all just thrust into this world where everything's changing. How are we going to get by? We try to hold on, yeah. We try to keep the bad things away. Not realizing that we're wasting a lot of energy, that, that the effort is futile, that we can't actually control what's happening. But what else are we going to do? Until we start to develop other protection for the heart, kindness, generosity, patience, the skillful qualities, wisdom, mindfulness, and concentration, the ability to start to come closer to experience and try to understand it rather than just try to get through, rather than just try to get by. We need enough support inside to start to let the shields down, right? To start to actually say, okay, let me just feel this. Let me just see what's happening. If you can do that for a moment, that's huge. Then go back to your anchor. Take a break. Rest. The Buddha said suffering is to be understood It's so radical to actually suffer consciously. Don was referring to this the other night, talking about Dr. King. Implications are vast for this. To be willing to be aware of our suffering. The Buddha said there are two kinds of suffering in this world. There's suffering that leads to more suffering and there's suffering that leads to the end of suffering. 
the differences in how we're relating, whether or not we're willing to look closely to see where am I holding on? Suffering has a cause, and that cause is struggle, resistance, control. Check it out. Next time you're suffering, look and see, do you have an expectation about how things should be? Are you fighting with what is? Ajahn Chah said, being a monk is knowing about letting go and not being able to 90% of the time. (laughs) So we're not going to be able to let go a lot of the time. That's okay. Just, Just stay present. Just try to understand. Remember, mindfulness is the intention to understand rather than to judge, rather than to control. So just hold the heart there and wait and see when the mind understands the mechanism, when it sees that the holding on hurts, it will let go on its own. The purpose of insight, the purpose of wisdom is letting go. Because letting go is what frees the heart. How does it feel to let go? How does it feel to put something down? that you've been carrying, you know, like a heavy bag? How does it feel to let go of something you've been holding on to? You know, maybe just like a moment in the sitting where you, you realize like, oh, my shoulders are, ah, something lets go. Or something that didn't go your way that you, you finally come to terms with, right? You find just like, okay, I didn't get the job. That relationship didn't work out. Okay. We can't will it to happen, right? We fight it tooth and nail until finally we just, okay, put it down. There's this quality of of space, of ease. Like that Vajra song Jess shared last night, open space is there, inviting So insight, it's not, it's not something we get. It's not another thing to want. This practice isn't about what we get, it's about what we put down. And that doesn't mean that we give up on our values. Doesn't mean that we give up on trying to learn or become a better person to make the world a better place, to heal the diseases of oppression or injustice, to address the climate crisis. It doesn't mean we stop engaging. It just means that we're able to do that with a clear mind, with a more balanced heart, without the contraction of fear and the the poison of hatred and anger. When we see clearly, the heart understands. When the heart understands, it lets go. I want to end with um, a passage from Ayakema, one of the great meditation masters 
of our times, a German uh, nun. This is from a talk she gave. There's only one thing that's important to every being, and that is a peaceful and happy heart. It cannot be bought, nor is it given away. Nobody can hand it to someone else, and it cannot be found. Ramana Maharshi said, peace and happiness are not our birthright. Whoever has attained them has done so by continual effort. Some people have an idea that peace and happiness are synonymous with doing nothing, having no duties or responsibilities, being looked after by others. That's rather a result of laziness. To gain peace and happiness, one has to make unrelenting effort in one's own heart. You can't achieve it through thinking, proliferation, by trying to get more, only by wanting less, by becoming emptier and emptier until there is just open space to be filled with peace and happiness. As long as our hearts are full of likes and dislikes, how can peace and happiness find any room? One can find peace within oneself in any situation, any place, any circumstance, but only through effort, not through distraction. The world offers distractions, sense contact, and they are often quite tempting. The more action there is, the more distracted the mind can be and the less one has to look at one's own dukkha. When one has the time and opportunity to introspect, one finds one's inner reality different from what one imagined. Hmm? Many people quickly look away again. They don't want to know about that. It's nobody's fault that there is dukkha. It just is. It can't be eliminated by distraction negation, or any outside remedy. On the contrary, wanting and getting make dukkha worse. They are all the cause of dukkha. The only cure is letting go. It's really quite simple, but few people believe this to the point of trying it out. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Just letting the words settle. Trusting that what's important for your heart to know and remember went in. And then now what's important is to just be present, to be here and look deeply one moment at a time. Thank you for your kind listening. We have some time for walking and then be back at nine for some chanting and the last sit.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.